you know, as we're seeing society now going through um, some of these necessary revolutions so that people are beginning to think outside of the prescribed boxes of sameness, birding is is no different than any other sector of society in that they're going to be a great deal there's going to be a great deal of discomfort with considering what it takes for birding bird watching nature study um, conservation environmentalism writ large for it to become more inclusive more diverse to reflect um, not just number wise who we are as a society but to think forward progressively as a society, those are some risks. Um, and, and a lot of us are watching to see who takes those risks. Welcome to another episode of Animalia's podcast, where every week we dive into different topics related to climate and conservation. I am James. And I'm Annalie. And this week, we're really excited to continue the conversation about the intersections of race and conservation with Dr. Joseph Langham, who is an alumni distinguished professor at Clemson University, and he also sits on numerous conservation organization boards. I'll let him introduce himself, and then we'll carry on. My name is Jay Drew Lanham. I am a professor of cultural and conservation ornithology at Clemson University. I'm the Poet Laureate of Edgefield, South Carolina, and author of The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, and Sparrow Envy, Poems. I read in some past interviews that you grew up on a family farm, and I'm curious to learn, like, how did that mold or shape and impact um, your work in conservation in the long run? The whole nature and nurture of my family and, and the place that I grew up in, um, being on a family farm and depending on the land for sustenance um, in many ways. I mean, we raised our own vegetables and, um, and fruits and also our own meat. So, um, and we had our own water supply. So um, we depended on the land and, and that made, had a huge impact on me in terms of I think my certainly my relationship to the land and having and my family's relationship and having an intimacy with with it, but also parents who were were nurturing the land and tending the land as farmers, but also as educators. So um, it was sort of this this triple dose, <laughs> um, as it were, of, of parents who were teaching it. Um, teaching and preaching it sort of, but also living it. They were walking the walk and talking the talk. And, um, and my feet were on the ground um, in, the, in the midst of it all. So I, I was surrounded, you know, there was no escape. So um, I, I sort of gladly succumbed to the, the siege of nature. And, and that's, that's what brought me to this place. Drew, in terms of farmers, I think for those of us that, you know, um, have not spent a lot of time on, uh, on a farm, didn't grow up or, you know, don't um, live, uh, live that lifestyle, we sort of have this assumption that all farmers um, value and treat the land uh, pretty equally because it's so uh, critical. 
to their work and to their craft. Um, yet there's clearly a lot of divide in the farm farming community around uh, environmental protections, um, you know, such as the Clean Water Act and Obama's Waters of the United States rule that has been repealed by this administration. A lot of mm-hmm. farmers in the farm, I think it's the American Farm Bureau Association, um, wording it incorrectly, some celebrated that. What What do you think it is about why why is there such divide within the um, the farming community around land and wildlife preservation um, and versus everyone sort of uh, living so dependent and so close to the land, all, all kind of being able to coalesce around that? I often hear people talk about economies of scale, um, which, which obviously play a role when we talk about industrialized farm now. And, um, and, and whereas my family was, was farming on, we had a couple of acres, but any given plot was a few acres. 10 at the most um, to, to farmers who are farming on thousands, tens of thousands of acres, um, not just to, to support themselves or their families, but um, to support economies. Um, that, that sort of hyped up scale um, of, of, of that economy makes a difference. But then I think too, there's a scale of ecology. Um, what we're dealing with, I think, is this, this hyperscale um, that's taken us away from an understanding of the close tie to the land, of having your hands um, in the soil, of, of producing a few acres for family, um, to, to understanding um, the importance of, of letting a field lie fallow or of rotating crops, of grazing a few head of cattle um, sustainably as opposed to, to, to grazing um, tens of thousands of heads that you're preparing for industrial slaughter. So that, that scale up, um, anytime we scale up, it takes us away from an intimacy, I think. And that scale up has taken many farmers away from nurturing um, to, to, to really um, having to um, to essentially become factories. And that's what, that's how I see many of these farms now. And, and of course that statement's out there, right? Factory farms, when we think about farrowing houses with um, thousands and thousands of pigs or chicken houses with, um, with breeds that have been bred so um, they can barely walk or function as the, the birds that they um, are supposed to be. So all of all of those things, rows and rows and rows, miles and miles of of, of clones um, that we pick and we feed, and um, you know, um, all of that scale up has taken us away from the intimacy, at least that I grew up with, and understanding um, that that when I went in the garden with my parents, whether to prepare it for planting, um, whether to weed or whether to harvest. That, um, that the fruits, the literal fruits and, and vegetables of our labor were gonna be on our table, um, that we weren't trying to satisfy the demands of some Fortune um, 500 um, company. And I think that's, that's made the difference. And, and that scale up has resulted in us losing contact with the earth in many ways.
do you have, is there a specific, you know, memory, um, a moment in your childhood anecdote that comes to mind that is sort of, uh, it was a big kind of grounding for, uh, you know, the, the man you'd become and the, the, the person you are today as an adult and the work you've done. Yeah, James, I, you know, there, there are lots of really pleasant memories growing up on that, on that farm and spending time out in the woods and the fields and fishing the creeks and um, all that. And, and those things just sort of converge in a, in a really positive way that I don't think I appreciated until my family essentially lost that farm once my father died um, of a heart attack at age 52 and he died without a will and and we were essentially forced to to we were forced to move from that land and um i was on my way to college at the time but i remember coming back to the land um in uh during a break in my freshman year and i can remember sort of the devastation that had taken place as the land had been logged and um all of those fields that we used to cultivate um, for vegetables and and um, and 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 other things, and the the pastures that used to be grazed, and all the cattle were gone. Most of the trees were gone. The land looked as if um, a bomb had had gone off, really. And I can remember at that point in time feeling this great sense of loss that I never wanted to feel again. Um, and, and having home sort of swept away in this tumult of of, um, of avarice. So that that point, I think, of loss really made me appreciate what I had had, what we had had all along. And uh, you know that old saying of not missing the the water until the well runs dry was sort of the um, was really sort of the literal clincher in that, you know, I went from drinking spring water where you never tasted chlorine to, and, and fresh vegetables and fresh beef and, and pork to this life sort of like everybody else where I was drinking um, chlorinated water and, um, and, and lots of, of processed foods. So I think in that moment of loss, I understood what I lost. And, and I think that was pivotal really in pushing me further towards the, the conservation career that I enjoy now. Switching gears a little bit to black bird watching. What, when did you start uh, your love of birds? And, and, and it's, you know, when, when did that become, I guess maybe rephrase that. When did that, when did your love of birds become a real, you know, uh, craft and hobby and something that you started spending more and more time with. Do you, do you, do you recall back Sana, kind of when that was, or what was your first experience bird watching? My thinking is, um, is second grade, I would say is when it was really formalized. So what are you, eight years old, something like that, I guess. Yeah. In, you're the, in the second yeah. grade. So yeah, that, that was really the formalization of it. I had um, I had noticed birds early on, and um, in the second grade, though, there was a teacher, a second grade teacher named Ms. Beasley, who 
Um, most people probably can't remember the Ms. Beasley doll. That's sort of a, a late 60s, 70s thing, I think. But um, Ms. Beasley had this salt and pepper gray hair, sort of a, um, as I remembered, a little bit of a, um, a matronly figure. But I can remember um, her passing out these mimeographed sheets of birds. And, and back then, the mimeographs um, smelled terrifically of this ink that was probably giving all the kids a buzz. But this, these mimeographed sheets had outlines of birds. And I remember the first bird that she passed out for us to color was a northern mockingbird, which is a common enough bird for most people um, in many parts of the United States now, and a, and a bird that a lot of people don't notice. But I had noticed mockingbirds, and I knew that mockingbirds were these um, these shades of gray and a little bit of black and 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 white. And um, in our in our tiny box of uh, of second grader crayons. Um, only had had black crayons available, and so I, I used that black crayon to to color the highlights that I could remember that were black, and then I used my pencil to shade the rest gray, and I left other portions uncolored because they were white. And my deskmate at the time, I remembered looking over, and she had colored her bird all sorts of garish colors, like it was a painted bunting. And then in my head, I knew that her bird, while um, it was fantastically beautiful, was ornithologically incorrect. <laughs> so you knew I, that in I, second grade. <laughs> in second grade. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that was the beginning of the, the that was the beginning of the end for me. And that I was... Um, you know, uh, I'm sure some people would have said, well, you were just an unimaginative child. What did it matter that she colored this bird beautifully, used every crayon, all of the eight crayons in the box. Um, I used I used one in my in my pencil because I thought it was important to represent the birds as I had seen them, as I knew them. And so that was I, I always count that coloring incident um, as my is my introduction to formalized ornithological training. After that incident, did you, you know, kind of sort of, you know, kind of race outdoors and, and start to observe them or did, when did the practice of observation um, and uh, you know, as you progress into the scientific area of the field throughout your career, did that start at that moment too? Or is that was the moment where you recognize the appreciation and love of birds, uh, but it still took some time before you started to actually, um, you know, spend time observing them. Or were you doing that as a child as well? Yeah, I was. I was doing all that as a child. I mean, it. Um, there wasn't any separation for me, and 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 I don't feel like I ever really staged anything. It was like it all happened at once. It was all heaped on at once. The the adoration and appreciation of them, the identification of them, the parsing apart and understanding the difference between a scarlet tanager and a summer tanager. Or, um, all of it, all of it sort of came at once. And I, I had a friend um, that I met in the second grade, Carl Montgomery, who um, took on birding, bird watching with me. And so I had this sort of partner in 
in, in crime who I could talk to about the birds that he saw in Aiken and the birds that I saw when I went back home to my farm, um, to our farm in Edgefield. So, and, and my, my parents would allow me to call him from time to time and, and we would talk about mostly about the birds that we saw. And so, and that was in the second grade. And then um, around the third grade, as our friendship continued and we kept watching birds, um, our librarian, Ms. Wingo, gave us permission to leave um, this sort of primary and very simple side of the library where second and third graders mostly resided with their books. She allowed us, she opened up this new world on the other side of the library where there were bigger, thicker books. And I remember finding field guides among um, that wonderful collection of books and, and ordering as many bird books as I could from um, the weekly reader, uh, the weekly reader um, orders that, um, that came. And so, you know, by third grade, I mean, I was trying to collect bird books. Um, Ms. Wingo would occasionally give, um, give us magazines, older magazines, um, National Wildlife and Ranger Rick especially. And, um, and then some of the librarians from my father's school um, would, give, would give me magazines and I would cut pictures of birds out of those magazines and create dioramas and shoeboxes. Um, that I would, would, would then construct a hole in one end and I would sort of fall into this world of birds and other wild things too. But it was an obsession. I'm, I'm, I'm quick about that. Um, I'm, I can be, you know, pre-climate change glacially slow um, with some things, but when it, when it came to birds, um, I was hot. And hmm. it, 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 it was a, a fire that took off really, really fast. And, um, and, and, it, and it's, it's, it's met, you know, a couple of challenges along the way and, and people purposely or, but mostly sort of subconsciously trying to douse that, but um, it's never gone out. And, and so I, I can go all the way back to that, to those days of, of elementary school and just remembering um, being obsessed with, with, with birds. And one of the things you mentioned there was the, <clears throat> the value of, of finding somebody else who had the same love of birds mm -hmm. and how critical that is to anybody that uh, falls in love with a, um, any, any, anything. And, and whether it's science, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a sport um, to have that, find that community. Right. And we are, we are tribal uh, creatures by nature. Uh, and that sort of, I think is, is even harder for, uh, members of the black community because it's sort of as a pro environmentalist as a conservationist you're all right you're you are already in the minority mm -hmm. um and um you know you talked about some of this in you wrote a powerful piece in 2013 the nine rules of uh the black for, for the black bird watcher and in one of those lines you talked about that you're an endangered species and an extinction looms and I'm wondering if you can expound on that a little more and why, A, why it's so critical 
that we have more representation um, in uh, conservation, um, in ecology, in environmentalism, why that's so important and why it's been so, so hard to come by to date and what, what we, you know, what we can do to change that. Well, I, I think, well, when I, when I wrote Nine Rules, I was writing it and I wrote it quickly. It, it didn't, I was given, you know, two weeks to, to write that, uh, to submit a manuscript to Orion. And I had submitted it within a couple of hours because I, I, I had lived each of those nine rules. I had been thinking about them for a good portion of my life. And um, you know, meeting Carl Montgomery in the second grade was important, but Carl didn't, Carl shared very little with me really other than the love of birds. I mean, he was a white kid. He lived in the suburbs of Aiken. I lived on a farm in Edgefield. Um, we had two very different existences except for this love of birds. That was a really important lesson for me, James, in that, um, that it, it helped me. I mean, I'm, I'm certain I, I recognized that Carl was white. I'm certain that he recognized that I was black, but it, it did not stop us from pursuing this same love of birds. And I think back on that now, and I'm, and I'm really grateful for that experience because it taught me larger life lessons. And it was an opportunity for birds to really, um, to, to help me transcend difference, not to forget the difference, not to try to hide it or discount it in any way, but really just as birds are different and we can appreciate them for all the differences that they exhibit, whether it be plumage or bill shape or behavior or, um, or, or habitat that they, that they choose. That, that was, that was, important for me as a as a young boy to understand that even though you might be different from someone there are ways to come together and so birds were the the conduit for that um you know going forward uh, as i recognized that there weren't people there weren't very many people there weren't kids at school who really um seemed to take up the same hobby that carl and i had with with bird love and, um, and, and so I sort of continued on this, this track alone. And I did not see in the magazines that I looked through um, or the few television programs that ever presented bird watchers or, you know, the, Bever the Beverly Hillbillies I can remember and, and Jane Hathaway, uh, the, the banker's secretary um, was this older white woman who was a bird watcher who wore a, a, a pith helmet and and a, and a and a khaki uniform that that was certainly far from cool right um jane hathaway did not present anything that that most people most kids would want to replicate and i wasn't seeing people who looked like me and as you become more self-aware as you get older i think you begin to recognize those things you begin to recognize that there aren't um, others doing what you do who look like you, but that didn't stop me. You know, it, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that, 
I, I realized and said, well, if, if there's no one else like me doing this, then I'm going to stop and do what everybody else does. Uh, in, in some ways, I think it kind of strengthened my resolve to, to be better at what it was that I was sort of out there where I felt like I was alone doing. So, you know, that, that comes around after a while um, to this important question of, well, yeah, I'm, I'm good at this. I love doing it. But why aren't there others out there doing what it is that I do? And, um, you know, all through most of my undergraduate career, when I finally got into zoology from engineering, and then through my master's and my PhD, I just was not seeing um, black wildlife ecologists. And the first person that I can remember seeing who looked like me doing the things that I love to do um, was on this television program I was, I was watching. Uh, my daughter was maybe, I don't know, a year old, and there's this black man appears on TV. His name was Dudley Edmondson. And um, he was <laughs> he was in the snow um, watching birds and doing bird photography. And I learned that he was in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. And I would meet Dudley years later. But um, during a, a very lonely time when I was working on my graduate degree and feeling the loneliness in a way that I had never felt, you know, having become self-aware, not just of increasingly of who I was as a black man, but also um, having been exposed certainly multiple times by that time to racism and bias and understanding um, those dynamics, it was in, in incredibly important for me to see this man doing what I loved. And it gave me heart and it gave me courage and inspired me to keep going. And, and so I did, but, uh, you know, as you go along doing those things, you live this life. And so in 2013, when I wrote that nine rules, um, they were all rules that I had thought about, that I had lived or, or things that I had practiced. And while, um, there's obviously some hyperbole there, um, you know, satire, is 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 best and maybe not true satire until it comes around to some truth and so every one of those rules had a bit of truth so the idea of being an endangered species um you know spoke to the rarity of of black uh, bird watchers of black birders of of black ornithologists certainly but then to um writ large of, of being an endangered species as a black person, um, that there's this sort of constant threat on your life that you have to, that you have to be aware of. And so those nine rules really began, um, opened up sort of a new chapter where increasingly I try to help people. I try to communicate this, this, this empathy that I have four birds, that I share um, these, these thoughts of being a bird um, and of protecting birds because I see the parallels in our lives in many ways. So you know, it was part of the reason that you know, I wrote that next, 
that next set of rules really um, that would that would move forward those nine rules into those you know into those revelations for the black bird watcher that's so interesting in terms of i mean i know you wrote that in 2013 since mm -hmm. then have you seen like the landscape or simply like organizations investing in more black communities and like trying to diversify the hobby or have you do you think that that has remained pretty constant over the years well anna there's um there's been there's been improvement certainly people um you know there have been efforts i, I was part of a a group of um of, of bird watchers that that really pushed the the idea of diversity in birding and um, there was a, a fellow named Dave Magpion who, who really um, spearheaded, um, you know, this 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 effort. But I joined him along with Dudley Edmondson and um, Doug Gray and Jeremiah Alexander and um, and Roy Rodriguez, and and we were really sort of this. Um, <laughs> And, and, in, and in retrospect, I think, you know, we, we quickly realized that while we were colorful, we were not diverse in other ways, but it was this, it was this idea of, um, of pushing diversity uh, in birding beyond, you know, the, the endangered aspect so that there were more of us out there reflecting society and the, the demographic um, out birding. So, you know, that effort um, that that started um, with us, the diversity in, in American birding um, was important. And I think it was a seminal part of the movement and, and got really people thinking. And so um, I can remember, for example, um, Jeff Gordon with the American Birding Association and, and, um, and some of those folks being really among the, the first, um, you know, some of the, the first supporters, uh, Mary Gustafson, an amazing, amazing um, bird watcher and ornithologist down in South Texas, who began to give us um, really uh, guides um, give, to give us uh, opportunities as guides so that people could see different people birding. I think about um, Kim and Ken Kaufman, um, who are, are famous in the, in the bird world in their own accord but who really began to open up, um, you know, the, 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 the world um, as they knew it in terms of, you know, these bird festivals where there are tens of thousands sometimes of people coming through, but to put inclusion and diversity um, on the front burner and not have it siloed off as something um, that, that, very few people um, would pay attention to. So, um, you know, we began to see some of those small moves there. Um, you know, I think about the nine rules that ultimately um, BirdNote um, picked up and, and was brave enough, this small organization in Seattle was brave enough to make it into a video um, not long after it was published. And if you think about that in 2013, 2014, for someone to take the risk and put out there the message that the nine rules for the Blackbird Watcher had 
was was pushing um that was a brave move and so there were really sort of these baby steps not huge organizations not major organizations coming on um initially because it was risky and it and it still is risky and you know as we're seeing society now going through um, some of these necessary revolutions so that people are beginning to think outside of the prescribed boxes of sameness, birding is, is no different than any other sector of society in that they're going to be a great deal, there's going to be a great deal of discomfort with considering what it takes for birding, bird watching, nature study, um, conservation, environmentalism writ large for it to become more inclusive, more diverse, to reflect um, not just number-wise who we are as a society, but to think forward progressively as a society. Those are some risks. Um, and, and a lot of us are watching to see who takes those risks and whether or not um, it's more than just a photo op. It's gotta be more than a photo op. It's gotta be more than a few dollars. It's got to be a true deep digging in to mission and vision and a commitment, um, not to silos, but a commission, a, a commitment to saturation, that inclusion and diversity becomes a part of who you are um, deeply and not just, and not just, uh, not just sort of a, a passing fancy. So I, 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 I can remember times around a board table with, uh, with the Aldo Leopold Foundation and, um, and, and, and trying to do the really hard work and, um, and how committed um, Estella Leopold, Aldo Leopold's daughter, um, is to, to these issues. And it's hard work. And um, it's really super hard work. But I can remember being a part of, of these discussions and um, and thinking about how hard the work is, but how deeply in someone like an Estella Leopold, for example, um, that 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 gets that's pushed, and then you have leadership, um, and and how your leadership pushes it. So you know, I I remember the names. It's funny. I remember the names of people like Jan Kobalicki and and Buddy Huffaker and and um, and Sally Bodie and. And, and, and folks like that um, who really took this, this idea of inclusion and diversity seriously and began to move forward in, in different ways. Um, even locally here in South Carolina, um, I think about um, someone like Sharon Ballard Richardson who was um, instrumental um, and Norm Brunswick, um, for that fact, for um, as we began to think about how we expanded conservation for birds with Audubon, South Carolina, beyond the bounds of this this beautiful um, deep cypress swamp, to to places outside and to think about the landowners and to think about um, black folks and how they connected to land. So I mention all those names because. Um, it's important, um, and I'm and I'm sure I'm I'm probably missing a few, but it's important because I can remember those people stretching their hands out in a very different way that said, you know, not only come join us, 
but we want to meet you where you are. And we want to understand this importance of inclusion and diversity that we haven't been addressing. And so there were risks that were taken um, in those efforts. And those are the risks that I wanna see um, other organizations take, that I wanna see them take the risk of, um, of, of, of moving mission um, for inclusion and diversity to moving that mission in the forefront. Um, and because it's not mutually exclusive, just because you honor people doesn't mean that you don't honor birds. So um, I'm sorry for the long response, but that's obviously a soapbox that I feel strongly about. I've been up on it for a while, I think. Uh, but I, I'm hopeful that um, as we've seen some progress over the past um, decade or so, that we'll see more progress and that um, not just birding or bird watching organizations, but conservation organizations um, writ large um, come to the table and say, you know, it's important for us to include everybody because it's not only is it, is, is it the, the morally right thing to do, but guess what? It's also, it's also good for business. Yeah, it's, can we actually t uh, talk, touch on that last point a little more, Drew? Because I think sure. it's so, so important that we, that people understand uh, these issues go beyond um, just moral right and wrong, right? And actually, if we want to actually progress uh, the work and, um, and improve people's lives, um, you know, in, in, uh, improving representation goes a long way in doing that. Because I think, you know, unfortunately, for better or worse, um, in society today, you're only going to get a handful of people, um, you know, willing to take risk and make changes on, on moral and values alone. And, you know, the sort of people are, you know, much more motivated, unfortunately, on, on actual, like, um, uh, whether it's, whether it's ROI from the economic, on the economic side of things, or whether it's, uh, ROI on, um, you know, actually proven, uh, improvements in, in, uh, climate and conservation, you know, people are motivated by the data. And mm -hmm. so can we, can we talk a little more about how, you know, the increasing representation um, from black indigenous people of color in conservation, in wildlife ecology goes so much further beyond just doing it because it's the right thing to do. That actually by doing this, we will actually make more progress on the mission that we're all aligned on that we, you know, we want to, um, and the environment and the climate that we want to protect. Can you, can you talk about that a little more and maybe give one or two examples um, that sort of, that, that highlight that? Well, it's, I mean, quite simply, it's more shoulders behind the, behind the wheel, right? I mean, <clears throat> this, these are, I mean, these, these global issues that we're facing and, and the huge one, at least environmentally of climate change. Um, I mean, it's, it's going to affect everyone in, in some way. And, and understanding that in order to move an issue so big with so much momentum that it's gonna take more than a few privileged folks who are just concerned with the drowning of, of polar bears um, to think about how, uh, for example, bad air days when um, 
when people with, with pulmonary conditions, which impact communities of color, by the way, um, significantly greater rates than they do majority communities, that, that the air that the polar bears breathe and that's melting their ice flows, that's creating drowning situations for them is the same bad air um, that's created by global warming that's impacting um, the air that people of color don't have to breathe. So, you know, that, that challenge of how you take a global challenge like climate change, um, you know, as, as, every, as everyone who um, has any sense would agree is an obvious existential challenge. How do you take that and boil it down to uh, a community? How do you boil it down to a neighborhood? How do you boil it down to a household, to a single person? Um, because ultimately policy, policy, every policy begins with some person's agenda. And I always challenge my students to think about how one person um, can impact, can feel so deeply about something that ultimately that their policy, that their personal policy um, moves forward in some, in some way. So, you know, I, I'd like to, to always challenge people back to that. Um, the, the bumper stickers that many of us used to put on, on cars back in the, maybe in the 80s, um, and earlier, and, and thinking globally and acting locally. And, and so when we think about, you know, this local action, it almost goes back to that whole conversation that we were having about scale up um, in agriculture and loss of intimacy there. And I think one of the mistakes that we've made in um, conservation and the environmental movement and, and leaving um, quite a few people behind, especially underserved audiences that um, are mostly of color, um, often not of, of equal economic status, um, not of, of equal opportunity, um, access to opportunity, that um, the problems, these large problems that some people have the privilege of thinking of, um, and when I say privilege, that we can think about that some people have the, the disposable um, time, income, and I would say disposable thoughts sometimes to think about places that are far away and very wild that, um, that are on some bucket list that they hope to go to one day. Whereas someone who might be sitting in a community that's downwind of toxic flow, that's downwind of water that's unclean, where soil is contaminated so as to create cancer clusters, where they don't have equal access to health care, where they may live in a food desert, they can't afford, they have not the privilege to think about faraway wild places. The frontier is out their front door. And as people are thinking about what it is that it's going to take for them to live from day to day, to put food on the table, to keep a job, to, to have health care, um, for, um, for their own infirmities or those of their family um, or friends, that's a very different challenge that environmentalism and conservation has to put its arms around. And if you don't put your arms around it, not only are you losing ground, um, as we say, on that, on that moral front, but you're also losing ground on the front and the opportunity to involve stakeholders 
who can go to battle with you um, as we talk about moving policies forward. And um, it's not the same privileged audience that's just going to testify about faraway wild places, but it's a more diverse, colorful um, audience that's going to talk about things that are hitting close to home, things that are happening within congressional districts, things that are happening that will make senatorial candidates think about the environment in different ways and think about it not as fringe um, issues that only a few people want to have addressed, but they are pivotal uh, issues that people become elected on. Um, so, you know, there from from the policy perspective, um, to me, um, if I were an elected official, if I were someone that depended on others for my my job, at the very least, um, I would pay attention to to environmental issues because they play right in they sit right beside um life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and and the inalienable rights that um that our constitution guarantees on on this on this capitalist side and 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 people thinking about making money and thinking about what happens um to their investments i mean again this is a this is a it's a it's another um perhaps I guess argument of of supply and 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 demand, and as we we think about our populace and we think about, um, for example, you know, if we're, we're talking about clean water, if we're talking about clean air and energy, if we're talking about wildlife habitats, um, then we're talking about protecting increasingly rare commodities. And as we talk about protecting rare commodities, that's worth something. It's worth something. Well, first of all, it's the air that we breathe that we need to survive. It's the water that we that we drink. It's it's our foods. Um, it's the the beings that we share the planet with. So again, the moral arguments to me are obvious, are easy and obvious. Um, the political arguments to me are pretty easy and obvious. Um, where some people trip up is they say, well, this means that we can no longer plunder the land as we wish um, to extract everything that we can now so that only a few can have riches. Well, um, to me, if we're looking at sustainability, if we, as we say we are, are looking towards future generations and having few, having better for those who come behind us, then we're going to think about sustaining. We're going to think about conserving. We're gonna think really um, about the love that we have for those people that we know, our children, maybe for some their grandchildren, but then ultimately for those people that we will never see, whose names we will never call. Um, and, and, and that to me, again, is sort of a different sort of, um, requires a different scale up. It requires a scale up of, of the heart in ways. Conservation to me is, um, as a science, is, is a science that you, you better have your heart in because it really does require us to think about saving some for later, for others that we might not know. And, and that, that requires at some level um, the four-letter word love, which um, is, a, is a commodity 
that that no one really has um, a hold on. And I think if if corporations and 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 organizations begin to think about this sustainability aspect of caring for others um, down the road, then we're going to begin to see the economy in some ways change. And I think that will be part, hopefully that'll be a part of this revolution as we think about green economies, as we think about new kinds of deals to make the earth first in our consideration as opposed to last and just something to plunder, then we can begin to think about economies that support um, people in a very different way. It's going to require a huge sea change, obviously, in how we think. And it's not about an individual having everything that they can have um, while others barely scrape by. But I think um, if you really look back at it, that this is, this is um, sort of our, this is the, if evolution can be a proper thing, this is our proper evolution to move in that, in that direction. So, you know, my, my examples are the, the, the people, the organizations that I've seen that take the risk, that take the risk and, and know that, yeah, you know, we may lose um, membership, for example, um, when we, when we make commitments to inclusion and to a diversity and to doing things the right way. But we understand that in the long term, we're going to gain that we're going to gain um, membership that we never imagined that we'd gain, that we're going to gain allies um, by being allies, that, that we're going to be a different sort of organization. And by being different, we then determine our own market. So, um, you know, I, I think that there are opportunities for lots of companies to do that. Um, by taking uh, capital, the immense capital that some of them have gained and reinvesting it um, in communities and reinvesting it um, into to green infrastructure in those communities and reinvesting it into different kinds of training and reinvesting it in being sustainable, um, reinvesting it and scaling down so that there can be more participation, so that there, that all of the eggs aren't in one bread basket. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, um, I'm no economist. <clears throat> I didn't do well at micro, in my microeconomics class at Clemson, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but I think um, there, I think there's a way forward that's different that can take us to a better place, you know, as we are experiencing the current revolution and going through that and people are having to, to think differently. I think that's a, it's a critical and crucial time for environmentalism and conservation to not be left behind, um, to not turn a deaf ear to these issues. Um, as we saw during Black Birders Week, we saw some organizations um, and, and some, some folks turn a deaf ear to the whole issue of, of uh, diversifying and being more inclusive with with bird watching and folks said well i don't want any part of this because it's too political um you know we're listening we see you and and those are the organizations that ultimately will get left behind um that aren't evolving 
and that because they aren't evolving, um, you know, they're going to end up in some sort of, I guess, uh, uh, some sort of business version of the La Brea tar pits. But I, I like to think that we're at a pivotal time in conservation and environmentalism that should be part of this movement that's going on. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad um, that we've come to this point in the country <clears throat> that things have to happen as they are happening. Um, but I think, I hope that with, um, with peaceful protest and, and people um, moving forward in this new way that conservation and environmentalism can become, um, become more colorful, more, inclus more inclusive in all sorts of ways that, that make dollars and cents and morals and cents um, that they all come together in this, in this new way that, um, yeah, that move us forward. Absolutely. I mean, you touched a little bit on this already on Black Birders Week, but I'm curious to learn more on what do you think the role is of social media and conservation in these environmental spaces? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> you know, when I, I, when, when I was made aware of, of Black Birders Week and this amazing group of of young people, um, when what they did in a matter of hours, really, and that what some of us and had been working years at, and in, in, in this ability again. So we're talking about scales again, but this is a scale of communication. So you know, in this scale of communication, um, where 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 Anna Gifty, Opuku Agumon, and Sheridan Alford, and Danielle Bellany, Chelsea Connor, Joseph Saunders, um, and Taiki, Taiki James, you know, where they were able to take social media and leverage a message, all right? Leverage a message by a hashtag. And that that hashtag, um, that you leverage that message against the fulcrum of, um, of, of bias, when you leverage that social media message in that way, where you're not reaching tens or hundreds or thousands, but you're reaching tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands um, with a message, then um, you, 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 you move power exponentially. And you begin to talk about a seed change. You begin to talk about paradigm shift. You begin to talk about, um, you begin to talk about changing um, by ex by this exposure. Um, you begin to to alter attitudes, and if nothing else, the attitude of thinking that you're thinking now outside of the box that many people have not had the the impetus to do. But all of a sudden, if you're hearing the stories um, shared between. Um, birders who look differently than you, who've had these different life experiences, who love birds just like you do, but who may have to exercise a different sort of priority when they're out watching birds, that, you know, you've got to have one eye in the binoculars and one eye behind your back, which, trust me, is a hard thing to do um, as you're watching birds, that you begin to develop a different sort of attitude um, about inclusion, about diversity, about who you see doing it. And social media allowed that to happen. 
So in that scale up that, um, that these amazing young people um, exercised, in that scale up, then I think ultimately what the responsibility comes down to birders to do for bird watchers um, in the majority right now, um, it should cause them to scale down. And it should cause them to begin to think about, oh, you know, um, I saw someone who did not look like me, but who loves the same things that I do. So there's some commonality there, but I also recognize, respect, and appreciate the differences between us. And so as I learn, um, as this, this, this ally learns um, more and more in this movement about um, who other people are, that they begin to move from um, noticing hopefully, to helping to nurture someone who's different in birding and bird watching. And again, I go back to Ms. Beasley, um, who was that second grade teacher who gave us those bird pictures to color, who was white, um, and very pivotal in my life. I go back to Carl Montgomery, um, who became a friend and fellow bird watcher in the second grade, who was white. Um, who lived a different life than me, but we came together over birds. And I think about this, this line of people who helped foster my love for birds all the way up into, you know, my college years and Dr. Sid Gotro and Dr. Patty Gawadi and man, so, so many people who have been um, important in my life and helping me, um, helping me sometimes get over the hurdles of hate. Um, that's a critical thing that happened with Black Birders Week, that people were exposed in a different way. And these young people, knowing how to leverage, use that leverage to great effect. So what I'm looking forward to beyond, beyond that leveraging now is for us to continue that um, and to, to move bird watching forward in ways that um, that will help us be a, a more diverse um, hobby and um, and maybe vocation for some, but that the appreciation of nature um, in a larger sense becomes something that everybody understands is an important thing because we all breathe the same air ultimately. Um, everybody's downstream of someone else. And we all depend upon soil um, to grow the foods that, that nourish us. There's a really powerful insight uh, hearing you speak, Drew, that I'm pulling out. I'm, I'm, and I want to sort of articulate it and, and ask you if, if you agree with it. Um, because it's so important. Uh, I, I mean, I keep hitting this over. I keep hitting this again and again because it's so important that we recognize the, the value for progress in improving representation, in mm -hmm. highlighting and and a lot and, and getting more, um, making it easier um, for Black and Indigenous people of color to be involved in conservation. And it goes so far beyond just the moral right to me. And and this is the insight that, this is one of the insights that touched that that I'm I'm pulling out is, for those of us who are um, more privileged and those of us who grow up um, 
let's say, uh, in more comfort um, without uh, as much day-to-day stress and, and fear, we tend to be more disconnected from our immediate surroundings. We tend to look at causes and things globally in other parts of the world that are somewhat exotic and exciting to say, I want to go solve that. And it's not that that, and, and, and if I'm looking at wildlife in particular, this, this points to why I think so many people are drawn to lions and tigers and elephants and rhinos and polar bears. And it's not that any of those five example species don't need help. You know, they absolutely do. Um, but I think, you know, it's so, for, for those of us that do grow up with some of that comfort and privilege and are, are a little more disconnected from our immediate surroundings, we tend to go there first. Mm-hmm. And what's seemingly really powerful to me about black birders is that birds are wildlife native to our lands, to the United States that get often overlooked and don't get much appreciation. Um, we only know birds from, you know, pigeons in New York probably get the most attention of any uh, U.S. bird species. And is something to me very insightful about, well, for people who don't grow up with that privilege and people who don't grow up um, with the same levels of comfort, they're much more tied to their immediate surroundings. Um, they live in it in a much more um, uh, sort of, hands-on way day to day because they have to they don't have the privilege and the opportunity to just think about um, causes and issues and species in other parts of the world because they're living in their world um, in a much more intense and real way and perhaps that is why and that's that was why we see a black birders movement where a lot of uh because you're because for black americans that don't have that privilege because of systemic racism, they're much more connected and tied to their immediate surroundings and care about it so deeply. And without black birders, we might not have the same attention to birds and our local wildlife that we need. And so this to me sort of is kind of representative of the value of um, in improving representation because there's more there's there's got we're, we're going to sort of touch on and cover um a wider range of in this case wildlife important species and important conservation whereas you know we can we it's, it's easy if we only look at it through the lens of those that grow up and live comfortably um that are not that are more disconnected from the immediate surroundings we might not actually be taking enough action um, for those that need help in our immediate surroundings. Uh, we might be just jumping into, you know, in, the, in that case, elephant, rhino, lion, tiger, polar bear, um, just from a wildlife standpoint. So is that, do, do you, do you, do you, would you agree with, with that? Or do you think what I'm saying is, is, is off base? Well, again, James, I think, <clears throat> I, 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 I believe I agree in that. You know, I'll, I'll go again to the scale up versus scale down kind of model in that people um, who don't have the, the, the privilege, not that they don't have dreams of faraway places or, or travel or, or seeing um, the world beyond their back door, but when your immediate environment is 
that's the challenge. You know, um, you're, you're not sort of philosophically in some ivory tower away from it all so that you can see um, this other horizon where you can escape your troubles, but you're down in the basement um, and, and danger is at your door. Um, and, and that danger in the form of, 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 of whether you're gonna have enough to eat, of whether or not you're gonna be able to turn on your faucet and have clean water to drink, um, of whether or not you're going to um, be able to, um, <laughs> to to travel without being persecuted by the by the police and and um, you know there's so many privileges to be overcome um, and the first thing to think about privilege wise is sort of going through this catalog of what they are and, and many people don't do that so you know, to be inclusive um, for conservation organizations, environmental organizations to be inclusive means that people are gonna have to come down out of ivory towers. And, um, and, and while we don't, we're not telling people to divorce themselves of thinking, I mean, I think about all the wonderful far away and wild places that I would, I would like to visit um, and I'm, I don't stop dreaming of those places. But one of the things that um, this pandemic and the current situation um, has, has done is it's led to this intensification of appreciation for, for home and for the close by. And, um, and what I have around me um, in this close by space is ultimately sort of my day to day, right? Um, and it's the places that, that I know best. You know, I talk all the time about um, range and, and, um, and what range means to birds and to other animals. Well, in this case, thinking about home range and thinking about your community and thinking about what's good in your community and what's bad in your community and all sorts of aspects, environmental um, and, and societal. And you think about those things and if you don't improve those things close to home first, then I think I think you're misplaced. You're certainly putting um, more than the cart before the horse. Um, and, and, and so for for many people um, who have been left out of these conversations, um, there's an opportunity for us to look to home and look to our neighbors and look to people who may live on the other side of the tracks or live outside of the gates that we shut behind, that are shut behind um, when they go home at night. Um, it's a chance to look outward and say, you know what? Um, these, are, these are folks, these are neighbors really, um, living, living closer to um, the ground in, in ways um, that, than I do in understanding these local issues and understanding um, that the water is not clean and understanding that the air is not clean and ultimately that's going to affect me so selfishly um, you, you can think about what eventually is going to visit you and if you think about that then you'll begin to pay attention to other people and what other people are going through because to foolishly think that you can live in a bubble in some sort of vacuum without it impacting you is to stick your head in the sand um, until it knocks at your door. And then um, how do you answer it? So 
um, uh, you know, the challenge is here um, now. Um, there's an immediacy to our action that has to be played upon, that has to be played to, that has to be paid attention to. And um, I, I certainly um, people, some people are beginning to understand that from a racial justice um, standpoint. Um, but we have to think about inclusion. We have to think about the environment. We have to think about conservation as not being separate and apart um, from the natural world, um, to sort of paraphrase out of Leopold, but to think about all of us as being part of it, that we're all, you know, some of the cogs and wheels that go into making this whole thing work. And um, the sooner we figure that out, the better off we'll be. That's well said. The, just before we jump, the last thing I'd love to get, get your perspective on um, is this administration under Donald Trump has pulled back a number of um, environmental protection um, uh, rules and, and, pass, and, and laws um, in the last you know, three and a half years. I think the National Parks and Conservation Association has highlighted 123 policy changes dating back to January of 2017 um, that, you know, either directly or indirectly um, have, you know, pushed in the face uh, uh, against conservation, against um, environmentalism. And I want to, A, get your just, you know, your thoughts on that. And, um, and uh, if, if it is, you know, as bad as it seems um, to folks like me that, uh, you know, are not, policymakers um, are not scientists, but from what we, what we can see and understand, there's been devastating changes made by this administration. And then the second part is, if there's any one in particular that really stands out to you, the, the one that stands out to me is the sort of pulling back of Obama's waters of the United States, also tails back to the Clean Water Act, uh, I believe in 1992, um, and allowing construction on wetlands, which a lot of bird species are very dependent on in this country and then allowing even worse in some, in a lot of ways, pesticides and fertilizers to be dumped into, um, you know, I guess what this administration calls um, smaller and ephemeral waterways um, uh, and streams uh, as if like, I don't understand the science of what they're, they're, they're coming at this at all because they're only protecting large bodies of water and, all bodies and streams do connect to each other. And um, to think that we can, you know, run the risk of polluting our water supply after, you know, incidents like we saw in Flint, Michigan is just, you know, mind boggling to me. Um, but yeah, I just wondering if you can A, talk about like, you know, if what this administration um, under the Trump, uh, in the Trump era has done is as bad as it seems to the average person like myself um, or if it, or is it, and how recoverable is it? And then two, um, if there's one in particular, one or two that stand out to you as uh, particularly uh, damaging. In a word, yes. It, it's uh, I, I I classify this administration as as uh, as a plague, um, and um, I don't say that lightly. It's been a plague on the environment. It's been a plague on. Um, racial justice. It's been a plague on, um, on, on so many and oppressing progress. And, and so when, when I call it a, a plague, when you have um, rule after rule rolled back and every opportunity 
um, use to roll a rule back that means that, um, uh, you know, for example, mine tailings can be dumped into streams or uh, that, that companies don't have uh, the same responsibility to make sure um, that their outputs aren't, um, aren't, aren't polluting not, not just the air, but, but ultimately killing people because we all have to breathe this air in, that, that the, the cost, the cost of um, this, the term of the current president is going to cost us for decades and it's gonna cost us beyond our lives into our children's lives and our children's children's lives. And so to me, that is, that's, that's criminal. Um, to me, it's um, it's sinful. Um, to me, it it, it breaks um, the 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 oath of office, um, essentially, to uh, protect and defend um, the citizens, because by um, unleashing the assault of environmental degradation on its own citizens is no less than declaring war. On your own citizenry, and 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 so um, yes, um, it 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 is worse, <laughs> I think, than many people know. Um, the reason that that I hold out hope is is um, hopefully um, that that people are learning lessons. Hopefully, there is an awakening. Hopefully, um, the next generation of of young folks. Um, like the ones who so so beautifully leveraged um, social media into this this week of awareness for black birding, hopefully armies of young people like that begin to leverage not just hashtags but begin to leverage their votes and begin to leverage um, some different view of this world beyond this 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 political plague. That um, that we're in, and make no mistake, um, this is a that plague is the compounding plague. It means that for anything that comes along biologically as a virus, that comes along racially as a rift, that it compounds it, that it makes it worse. And so, absolutely, it is as bad and worse than than many people would imagine. Um, and, and so much of it is being visited on us now. And we're gonna see much of it for generations to come. Um, and the birds that aren't there for us to watch and the habitats that, aren't, uh, that are no longer beautiful and the water that's no longer potable. Um, so much, so much damage in so little time, um, I think certainly is, um, certainly is immoral and it's a crime. So. Yes, um, we have much, we'll have much work to do. I don't think that all is lost. I hold out hope that we'll be able to recover some of this, um, but I want people to understand um, that, that, we, that we cannot, um, we cannot let this stand. So we usually end, uh, Drew, just a quick, uh, <clears throat> just a few rapid fire questions is kind of the first thing that comes to your mind when we when we ask these um they're all they're all pretty uh uh sort of light and painless um the the first one is what is your favorite book on you know climate 
ecology, environment, conservation, you know, what, what book would you recommend that, you know, anybody go uh, read today if they, if, uh, if they're looking for um, something uh, to kind of inform them? A Sand County Almanac. It's timeless. Sand County Almanac. Great. Mm-hmm. What about your, what is one a sort of a nature um, documentary or film that is not super well known that you feel is a, is a, is a must-see? Wow. I'll have to tout this, this piece that I was a part of called Cultivating the Wild, William Bartram's Travels. Um, just sort of a retrospective on um, an early explorer of the Southeast and how current natural history is informed by this very progressive, uh, for the time, um, natural naturalist across the Southeast who not only recognized what was going on with nature, but also some understanding of what was going on culturally with with indigenous peoples and the evils of enslavement. What is your favorite species of bird? Uh, the one with feathers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what is the one behavior change uh, that you think everybody can and should adopt uh, in um, you know, save this planet and as part of climate change? What is something that everybody can do that you would like to, like, like that, uh, that you would like to see being done? Um, that each morning you feel the first breath in your lungs and understand that it could be your last. And, mm-hmm. and so that breath that you breathe that all of us are obviously not guaranteed is important and that we share breaths that when I breathe out, the trees breathe in. When the trees breathe out, I breathe in. And so it goes for each and every individual on this earth. So when you breathe, understand that you're breathing not only for yourself, but you're breathing for every other being on this earth. Beautiful. Yeah, it's, super, yeah, it's beautiful. It's the, uh, the, poet, the poet in you coming out. <laughs> oh, I just want to say thank you again for all your insight. It's- I like muted myself, but I was like snapping in so many of your comments because it was great. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for the time and uh, all the work you've done and we'll continue to do. Um, we'll, uh, we'll do our part to make sure as many people as we can know about it. Cool. Thank you.